everyone. Welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. Uh, if you're new to our ministry, we're glad you're here. Right now we're in a series called How God Helps Us Change. And today's message is about how God can sustain and strengthen us in the face of suffering. Before we consider what it's like to face suffering with God's help, though, I think it's important to consider what it's like to suffer without it. How does an atheist hope? Christopher Hitchens was one of the most famous atheists of this generation. He was known for his fierce debating style and the hitch slap by which he would humiliate his opponents with a quick-witted one-liner. He famously called organized religion the main source of hatred in the world. He referred to God as a celestial dictator. But when he faced a cancer diagnosis in the summer of 2010, he wasn't quite as confident. He dealt with the same frustrations and pain that anyone would. He bemoaned the plans that he had for the future that would go unfulfilled. He expressed disappointment that he wouldn't see his children married or watch the World Trade Center be rebuilt. But worse than the suffering was the emptiness and the meaninglessness he felt under it. He said, to the dumb question, why me? The cosmos barely bothers to return the reply, why not? He wrote a book on his dying thoughts called Mortality, and in it he said this, One can become quite used to the specter of the eternal footman, and I don't so much object to his mutely reminding me that it's time for me to be on my way. No, it's the snickering that gets me down. He passed away a little more than a year after writing that. More than the pain or the abruptness of the ending, it was a sense that death mocked him and that his suffering lacked meaning, meaning that made it so hard. I don't say that to criticize Hitchens. If anything, I say it in compassion. But I think it's important that we hear the despair that a rejection of God entails. This is how an atheist faces suffering. In the end, this is all there is to an atheist's hope. By contrast, I want you to see the hope that the Bible calls Christians to. God doesn't promise to take away sickness and death for those who have made peace with him, but he does promise glory to come and the help of the Spirit to give concrete hope to the believer facing trials. And it's that hope that I'd like to consider with you today. Now, it'd be foolish for us to cling to that hope if there wasn't evidence for it, but it would be even more foolish to reject it if there was. Many people don't think deeply about the hope that God offers until it's the 11th hour and they're desperate for it. But hope is like a muscle that grows with use. And so it's essential that we settle in our minds whether we have a hope that can face life's challenges and whether we're growing in that hope and deepening our strength in it. More fundamentally, I want to challenge you to consider whether you hope like a Christian or like an atheist. Do you face the challenges of life by leaning into the hope that God provides? Or do you just hope that you'll avoid the suffering and get over it as quickly as possible? To help us with these questions, I'd ask you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 18. If you don't have a Bible, pause the video so you can get one and follow along. I'll read from Romans 8, verses 18 to 27. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he, is, for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we do what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is the word of God. Now this passage points to a Christian's hope in three ways, as it talks about creation's groaning, our groaning, and then the Spirit's groaning. Let's start with the first of those. Creation groans in the hope of our glory. The Bible says that the world around us is suffering, but it does so in hope of what will one day come of us. Creation groans in the hope of our glory. Now, we're often conscious of our own suffering, but we don't usually think about how the rest of creation suffers. But in verse 22 here, Paul says, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. It's talking about the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. It's describing the earth and all that's in it. And it's like Paul can hear it groaning, feel that sense of, uh, of, of pain. But it's not an empty frustration. That's not what it's expressing. The earth doesn't moan like someone who felt as if death was mocking it. Creation groans in hope. It groans like a woman does when she's in labor because it's looking forward to what comes next. In verse, tw in verse 20, Paul gives a reason for both the groaning and the hope. He says, the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. He's pointing back to the Garden of Eden where God cursed the ground because of Adam's sin. God's perfect creation was cursed as a judgment on humanity. No longer would the harvest be easy. God promised thorns and thistles, disease and disaster would multiply. And we usually read that selfishly in terms of how it's made our lives hard. But it's frustrated the creation as well. The earth was created to glorify God. But because of our sin, it groans under the ugliness of pandemics and earthquakes, wildfires and pollution. But even the creation knows that the curse will be lifted. Even the creation groans in hope. Verse 19 says, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Doesn't that sound a little odd? Why would creation be waiting for us to be revealed? It's speaking of that final day when God's children will be transformed into their glory. And creation longs for that day. 
It longs for it because that's when the curse will finally be fully lifted. Verse 20 says, The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation feels the weight of this world's corruption, but it's looking forward to the day when the curse will be left lifted. It's looking forward to the time when it's set free from sin and all of its effects. Isaiah 11, 6-9 seems to describe this hope. It pictures a day when the wolf will lie down with the lamb, the leopard with a young goat. It pictures a future where cows and bears, lions and oxen are all at peace with one another, and even children can play safely with cobras and other snakes. The creation groans for the day. It groans for that day when it can perfectly reflect the glory of God, when it expresses his peace and love rather than death and destruction. And the point of telling us, telling us how creation faces this world's suffering with such incredible hope, is to challenge us to do the same. If creation groans in the hope of our glory, how much more should we? And I'm not sure that we do. I think we put our hope in lesser things. I think we often hope like atheists. We hope in our next vacation. We hope in the end of the pandemic. We hope that things will always get better. We hope that we won't get sick. We hope that things will just go smoothly. And if we go to church, we can call that Christian hope. But that has more to do with the power of positive thinking than it does with Jesus. That's how atheists hope. And the problem is that those are inadequate objects of hope. They don't confront the reality of the curse that this world is under. And they don't look to the glory that God has called us to. It's not setting the bar too high to say, learn to hope like a plant or a rock or a fish. But that's exactly what Paul's doing. He's saying they know something that Christopher Hitchens didn't. Creation groans in hope of our glory and we should too. So let's turn there now. Let's turn to our groaning. Because after saying that creation groans in the hope of glory, Paul teaches us that we should groan in the hope of our glory. In fact, we have something that creation doesn't. We've already gotten a taste of the glory to come, and it should make us yearn for something more. We groan for the hope of glory. Now, Paul turns to the hope of our groaning in verse 23. That's where he says, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Believers have the first fruits of the Spirit. First fruits was a term used to describe the first part of the harvest. It was your first taste of the new crop. It's like when you're baking and you get a little spoonful of the pie just as it comes out of the oven. Or maybe you taste a little corner of the steak as it comes off the grill. And the moment you do, you know that what's to come is going to be amazing. That's what we've been given with the gift of the Holy Spirit. A foretaste of the glory to come. If you've put your faith in Jesus, the love and the joy and the peace that you've begun to experience from the inside are just a small measure of what you'll know in eternity. The sense of God's presence, the wonder in who he is, the awe at his grace. Those are all things that we catch glimpses of now. 
but those are glimpses of glory. We get hints, but the fulfillment's still to come. And it's because of this glory that we can groan in hope. Verse 23 says that we also wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, that might sound odd if you've been with us in this series, because last week we saw Paul said we've already received the spirit of adoption. And we have. But it's also just a down payment. It's like God signed the paperwork to finalize our adoption, but we're still waiting for him to come and bring us home. Now, by faith, we believe in God's adoption. But one day, we'll experience it by sight. We'll be greeted by God like a parent welcoming home a lost child. And that reunion will fill every longing of our hearts. Every hunger for relationship and acceptance and love and belonging will be ours. And we won't just believe it anymore. We'll feel it in our bones. Because our very bodies will be redeemed. They'll be renewed. Now we have help to battle the power of sin. But one day we'll have freedom from the presence of sin. No more temptations, no more struggle, no more sinful tendencies, sinful habits, sinful strongholds. That's why we groan in hope. That's why we long for glory, and it's supposed to affect how we face suffering. Our hope is not just that we'll get over all the bad things. Our hope is not just that we'll avoid all the unpleasant things. Our hope is in glory. And the hope of glory gives us a strength to face a world that's cursed by sin. In verse 18, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And I want you to notice that word consider. It's a word we've seen earlier in this series. It means to count on something, to reckon something is true or ascribe a certain value or meaning to it. Here, Paul's weighing two things that really can't be weighed. He takes scales out in his mind, and on one side, he puts the sufferings of this present time. And on the other side, he puts the glory to be revealed, and it just drops. It's heavy. On the authority of God's word, he doesn't see any comparison. And remember, this is a man who's been stoned, beaten, shipwrecked, and imprisoned. He's not a lightweight when it comes to suffering. But compared to the glory to come, he says, it's nothing. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 4.17, he says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Do you believe that? By faith, can you look at some of the trials in your life and say, light momentary affliction? <laughs> it actually helps if you sneer when you say it. Mock your afflictions. By faith, can you say, the eternal weight of glory is going to so crush even the memory of what I'm going through right now? This is a truth you have to lean into by faith. Because what your feelings are screaming is, this affliction is going to crush me. And Satan tempts you to think, this hope of glory, it's just some minor insignificant doctrine, just a religious thing. But in fact, the opposite is true. Don't hope like an atheist. We have an eternal hope of glory that gives patience and strength when everything's falling down around us. 
So groan in the hope of glory. Now we've talked about creation's groaning and we've looked at our own groaning. Finally, let's consider the Holy Spirit's groaning. The last thing that we learn from this passage is that the Spirit groans for us while we wait for glory. Maybe you're thinking, I realize I'm often tempted to hope like an atheist. And I want to start giving weight to the eternal glory that God has promised me. But right now, I'm being crushed. What I'm going through feels too big and too heavy. For you, the promise of Scripture is that you're not alone. The Spirit groans for you while you wait for glory. Notice what Paul says in verse 26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too too deep for words. Look first of all at how it describes us. It talks about our weakness. Some people give the impression that the Holy Spirit makes them walk on air. (laughs) They sound so victorious and it feels like they don't have any weakness. And when you give the impression that you do, they make you feel like it's some kind of deficiency in your faith. Make no mistake, we live with weaknesses now while we wait for glory. But the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. This is why we don't have to hope like an atheist. We're not alone in our weakness. God comes to our aid. Now, the example Paul gives is our weakness in prayer. Specifically, we don't know what to pray for. How do you pray for, pray for a pandemic, for example? On the one hand, we want to pray for it to end as quickly as possible. With so many people dying and being affected in different ways, we want it to end. But at the same time, we recognize that God and his sovereignty has allowed it to happen. And so we can't help but thinking about his purposes. What is God trying to accomplish in the world and in our lives? You should probably pray about that as well, right? But how? And then there's our own attitude. Has anyone been amazed at how godly your own response to the pandemic has been? (laughs) Me neither. We're prone to respond in ways that are often selfish, critical, and impatient. In some cases, those responses have strained relationships and caused disunity. In other cases, the impact has been even worse. And yet, we're slow to pray about those things. If we're honest, we're probably 10 times more likely to pray for the pandemic to end than we are to pray about our own attitude toward it. And that goes for almost any trial that we face. My point is that we're often all over the map in prayer. We don't know what we should pray for. And that's a problem because prayer is the mean that means that God has given us for us to receive his help. But this passage encourages us with the fact that God's Spirit helps us as we pray. We often get our prayers wrong, but it says the Spirit himself intercedes for us. Now, that's not an excuse not to pray, but it's an encouragement to pray because we're not alone in prayer. The Holy Spirit prays for us and alongside us as we pray. And he always gets it right. Verse 27 says, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He prays what we would pray if we knew what God knows. Isn't that incredible encouragement? 
When we pray, he sees what we're struggling with and, and what we're trying to ask, and he prays for us. But when he prays, he always knows just what to pray. He prays what we would pray if we knew what God knows. And we started with an atheist's groaning. Then we looked at creation's groaning, a believer's groaning, and finally, the Holy Spirit's groaning. Where do you see your own groaning in this message? What hope do you have to face the challenges of life? Now, maybe as you hear this passage this morning, you realize you kind of hope like an atheist. Your hope is basically just to avoid anything unpleasant and for everything to get better. And the ironic thing is that you might struggle with the idea of God because you consider yourself scientific and rational. <laughs> I don't know how to say this kindly, but there's nothing scientific or rational about thinking that you can avoid unpleasant circumstances and wait for everything to get better. The history of humanity has amassed way too much evidence for rational people to hope in that. Sooner or later, we all face conflict and difficulty and weakness and sickness and loss and eventually death. How rational is a worldview that doesn't account for those things? The scriptures teach that all of those things are part of the curse of sin. But the good news is that God heard our groaning. He saw our suffering and entered into our world. Jesus came as the man of sorrows. He faced rejection and attack. He knew weakness and pain, and he confronted death on our behalf. He mocked it. Jesus gave up glory to enter our groaning so that through faith in him, we might one day enter into his glory. If you're hoping in anything less than that glory, I urge you to come to Jesus in faith. Turn from the false hope of this world and give yourself to the great hope of the glory to come. You do that by embracing Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Take that step towards him today. But maybe you've done that as best you know how. Maybe, though, your groaning still feels hopeless. Part of the struggle is that hope is a muscle. And often Christians can be flabby hopers. When life is good, we act like the curse doesn't exist, and we put more energy into living the dream than living for the hope of glory. Learn to lean into the hope of glory. Learn to mock your afflictions. Learn to say, light momentary affliction. <laughs> Learn to think deeply about the eternal weight of glory. Instead of thinking about your next vacation or promotion or milestone, think about the glory of a renewed creation. Death doesn't mock a believer anymore. It invites them into glory. Think about the glory of a reunion with your Creator and Redeemer. As you learn to flex that hope of glory muscle and strengthen it, it gives you power in confronting life's trials. But we wouldn't call them trials if they didn't test us. Hope doesn't make the trials go away. It just makes them lighter. So cling to the God who hears your groaning. Rest in the Savior who entered into our groaning. And take heart in the Spirit who helps us in our weakness by groaning for us. You're not alone as you wait for glory. God will sustain you as you fix your eyes on him. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the incredible hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Help us to set our minds on that hope. Help us to examine false hope that we give ourselves to. I pray, Father, for anyone hearing this message today thinking, maybe I hope like an atheist because there really isn't anything real to my faith. I pray that you'd give them the courage to come to you, to come to Jesus Christ, turning from the false hopes of this world and giving themselves to the one true hope that there is in him. Lead that person today. And Father, for the rest of us, we pray that you would give us a, the grace to focus our eyes where they ought to be. Help us to flex that muscle of hope. Help us to mock our afflictions and, and count them as nothing compared to the weight of glory that is prepared for us. Thank you, Father, for all that this, all this is and all that's been made possible because of Jesus' death and sacrifice for us. We praise you in his name. Amen. Now, I hope this message has helped you to see the amazing hope that we have through faith in Jesus Christ. But more than that, to lay hold of that hope. If you want help in moving from an atheist's hope to a Christian one, or if this message has stirred up questions for you, leave a comment or send me an email. If you think this is a message that others need to hear, share the link and help spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.